So the, the second Bible reading today is from Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, starting at verse 9. On this Bible it's page 1286. So Revelation chapter 1, starting at verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow and his eyes were like burning fire, blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid, I am the, f- the first and the last. I am the living one, I was dead, and behold, I am alive for ever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Keith, for reading God's word to us this morning. I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 1 as we work our way through this text this morning to that passage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We ask now, Lord, that your spirit, your spirit alone will minister to our hearts. Father, we pray that your word will shape and transform our lives, that your word will shape and transform the life of this church that belongs to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, this morning, uh, if you are visiting here today, I just want to let you know that we are working our way through um, the first few chapters of the book of Revelation, and today uh, we are in chapter 1, verses 9 to 20, which is our text for this morning. So I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open uh, to uh, that passage. Uh, we saw last week uh, that the book of Revelation is a word of encouragement to all of us and to every church in every age. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is involved with all that takes place in his church and in this world. And this morning, we note further encouragement to God's people, his church, of his presence, of the risen and mighty Jesus Christ being in the midst of his church. Years after his ascension, Jesus appears to John on the island of Patmos, and he addresses him. And here we have the voice of Jesus, who is now the glorified, ascended, exalted Savior. 
speaking. And what we have this morning in our text today is a power-packed encouragement and as well as a challenge to the church. It's a power-packed encouragement because we are reminded today in this text that Jesus stands in the midst of his church. That is a very daunting uh, reminder, is it not? That Jesus Christ stands in the midst of his church. I must say this, when I was preparing this passage, I, I had to take a few moments to reflect upon this. Because you see, sometimes people, we, we forget it and we say, oh, we worship in our church. I know the sentiment that's behind that at Surrey Hills. This is our church. And, and in a sense, yes it is, but in a sense it's really not, isn't it? <laughs> this church belongs to Christ, correct? You agree? And that is a daunting reminder to us. It's not what you and I think, nor is it what you and I do. It's a daunting reminder to each and every one of us, including the pastors and the elders, that this church is his. And it is the honor of Christ that we must always maintain. And that is always uppermost in my mind as well. It's not about me. It's about the honor of Jesus Christ. Because if we fail to honor Christ, then as we see in these letters in time, Christ will rebuke, he will discipline, he will challenge, and in some instances, even take away the lampstand. That is how serious Jesus is about his church. And I think we fail to understand that, don't we, at times? We can get so blasé about the church. But it is precious to Christ. It is precious to him. Because he has redeemed a church by his precious blood. And he stands in the midst of his church. And he speaks with a powerful voice. And he will deal with his church the way he seems fit. And that is daunting. And that's what we have in the text here this morning. So we see today, I've titled this message, Jesus in the Midst of His Church. We have the commission. If I give you an outline of the passage, we have a commission, we have the appearance, we have the response. So that's the general outline of the passage if you want to follow through as well. And if you want notes of the sermon, I've always given copies around, I've emailed copies to you. You can always ask me and I will email a copy as well of the passage, of the sermon. So we see the commission in verses 9 to 11. John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called, uh, called Patmos and so forth. We see it there and then John is asked to write this letter. You see, many years after Jesus' ascension, he appears to John on the island of Patmos. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that John was, uh, was perhaps in his 90s. He's, uh, he's exiled in the island of Patmos. He's there because of the word of God. The word of God that he had preached and is there because of the testimony of Jesus. The testimony that he had already written about Jesus in the gospel as well. 
And so John is banished. He's put aside in this island. By himself, perhaps by himself, we don't know. But he's there. And then Jesus appears in this amazing way. You see, John had preached faithfully the word of God. He had written the testimony of Jesus. He was bearing witness about the things of Jesus. And so the book of Revelation begins with the statement, the revelation of Jesus Christ, because it is primarily about Jesus Christ. And notice how John describes himself here in this passage. He speaks of himself as a brother and as a partner in tribulation and the kingdom. That is, tribulation is a word means of suffering. And he's part of this suffering. You see, the church undergoes suffering. Contrary to all the, um, the prosperity theology that floats around, you probably heard uh, preachers get up and say, come to Jesus, name it, claim it. Have you heard that? And it'll be all right. Come to Jesus and all your suffering will be gone. No, no. The Christian life sometimes is one of suffering. And it's hard, isn't it? We have brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering today for Jesus in some parts of the world. What do I say to them? What do we say to them? Come to Jesus, name it, claim it. Everything's going to be alright. Prosperity theology doesn't work. There's a road of suffering as well. So suddenly John is taken up in the spirit. Look at our text here. And he's lifted up out of the realm of time and space. He was in the spirit on the Lord's day. You see, the seven-day Sabbath was over, and now he is in the Lord's day, the first day of the week, which we remember the resurrection of Jesus. The church gathers on the Lord's day. That's why we meet, don't we? This is the Lord's day. Do we think about that? What has happened to the Lord's day today? What's happened to the Lord's day in Australia, for example? I mean, I've spoken to people here, and... And who have been here for many years in this land, and you know the, the, the story, right? Many years ago, uh, people flocked to the churches on Sundays, correct? And if you didn't turn up at church, you were looked at as, as an odd person. Why were you not at church? Today, the church is meeting in shopping centers. You can't get a car park at, like, in the shopping centers. They have become the temples of worship, as it were. Now, I'm not having to go at anyone. You see what has happened to the Lord's Day. We've forgotten it. How, how, how precious is the Lord's day when we gather together in worship? You see, is that a priority in our Christian lives? That we come, that we celebrate, that we worship on the Lord's day publicly, celebrating God's grace to us, His mercies to us in the past week, looking to Jesus for the week ahead. Some weeks are more challenging than others. But whatever the circumstance, we come together, don't we? It's the Lord's Day. And this is the only place in the New Testament where we have the reference to this phrase, the Lord's Day. Elsewhere it refers to the first day of the week. A day set aside to the Lord. The church gathers on Sundays. And now in this Lord's Day, John is taken up in the spirit, taken out of contact with the physical world around him. And we read, and then I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet. He hears this loud voice. Voice like a trumpet. I mean, you see, when God gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19, we read of the sound of the trumpet. 
And the trumpet call in the book of Revelation calls to attention to an important message. And John is here in the spirit and he's in direct contact with his Savior and he's given to see things from God's perspective. And, and Jesus um, is, is speaking here. He's given, John is given a view of the church, the world and the end times in the, Revelation, in the book of Revelation. And Jesus now addresses John and the seven churches. And the message that John brings to the, that Jesus brings to the seven churches are that of praise, rebuke, promise to be in, in her midst, and sometimes discipline. There are three marks of a healthy church. One is the preaching of God's word. There is no substitute for that. The second mark is the proper administration of the sacraments. And the third mark is that of discipline for the good of the body of Christ. You see, here there is rebuke, isn't it? You see, John is now is, is not in some kind of trance that he is in some kind of fairy land here. No, no, John is understanding what is going on. He is fully awake, he's fully aware of what was going on. And what John sees is God's perspective of the world and his church. And this is what we see. We see, and while he's in this state, in verse 11, write what you see in a book. This massive scroll. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Myrna, to Pergamum, to Tyre, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. And we're going to work our way through these seven churches. Write it down, John. Write what you see. He's to write it and send it to the seven churches. Then we have this appearance, verses 12 to 15. Then John says, look at your text. I turned to see the voice. Now, you can't really see a voice, can you? You can't see a voice. You can hear a voice. I, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, notice this, friends. Verse 13. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with, with a long robe and so forth, stands. Now let's have a look what's going on here. Well, whose voice was this? We recognize people's voices, don't we? You can be at the back of a room and you call out, Chris, I can kind of recognize your voice. When someone calls us on the phone, before they even say hi, as soon as they speak, we recognize their voice. Even our pets recognize our voice. It's like the dog, is says, come on Toby, he comes around. You see, our voice... We, we, we hear it. We, we hear people speak. See, John turns. He turns and he hears this voice. It's a familiar voice. He recognizes this. You see, as a disciple, John had heard the voice of Jesus many times. He knew the Master's voice. There's a beautiful text in John chapter 10, verse 27, which reads, My sheep. Did you know that? Maybe you, you do know the text. My sheep here. My voice. And I know them. And they follow me. 
My sheep hear my voice. So, so John hears the voice and turns. And when he turns, what does he see, friends? Look at this passage. It's, it's amazing. On turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst, the seven golden lampstands, the seven churches. He saw these golden lampstands as a background to the Old Testament and so forth. I won't go into that this morning about the lampstands. And then in the midst of the lampstands, he sees one like a son of man. Clothed with a long robe and so forth. You see, the New Testament uses son of man many times to describe Jesus. This expression, son of man, can be misunderstood, referring to Jesus being merely humanity. That is, he is thought of himself as nothing more than man. But this is not so, friends. This is a resounding affirmation of the divinity of Jesus. And why do I say this? Give me, I'll give you one example. Let me refer for a moment to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. You see, Jesus was before the high priest. Alright? The high priest stood in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, Look what Jesus said, John chapter, uh, Mark chapter 14. I am, and you will see, the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of the power, and coming with the clouds of heaven. And when the, and the, the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. See, the high priest got it. The moment Jesus said, The Son of Man, he got it. That Jesus was claiming that he is God. And he tore his garments. And he said, what else more do we need? This is blasphemy, because this guy is calling himself God. And so we have your Jesus, the Son of Man, who is God. Why does John say, look at the text, the word like, one like the Son of Man. That's kind of like you ask the question, why? Surely John knew Jesus as a disciple. See, John, he, sees, he says, he's like the Son of Man because now John sees, I, I understand it this way, that he sees Jesus in his exalted, glorious, amazing person. You see, when John saw Jesus before in the earth, he saw him in all his splendor. He saw Jesus as the resurrected one because he ran to the tomb. Remember with Peter? John was a younger guy. And he actually ran faster than Peter. And he got to the tomb and he doesn't even say his name there in the Gospel of John. And so John is now seeing this Jesus as the exalted, glorious one. And he says he's like the Son of Man. You see, this is the glorious and awesome risen King. And notice how he's described. Look at how Jesus is described here, friends. He's clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash. Around his chest. The hairs of his head were white. Like white wool. Like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. Refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And his right hand he held seven stars. And in his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Wow. Do you see that this morning? Do you see this Jesus?
You see, the long robe is probably a priestly garment. You see, Jesus is our great high priest who entered the Holy of Holies once for all. He is the royal high priest. And then we read of this golden sash which may reflect his kingly status as the king of kings and the lord of lords. The hairs of his head, white, white as wool like snow, speaking of his absolute purity. You see, the terminology here takes us back to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, in our first reading, and we read this in Daniel chapter 7. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. You see, John is connecting here. He's seeing Daniel's prophecy. You see, you've got to understand the New Testament from the perspective of the old. You can't separate the old and say, well, that's old stuff. That's gone. No, no. There's a connection between the old and the new. If you understand this, then we need to see this, this prophecy now here. What Daniel describes to God, John now with variation ascribes to Jesus. You see, Jesus appears as God because he is God. And the Son of Man is now the Ancient of Days himself. And he's the Son of Man that Daniel prophesied. And friends, notice, his eyes were like a flame of fire. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I took my, my, parent, I took my dad to an eye clinic. Uh, actually, to, my, to, to our daughter's eye clinic where Jessica works. And uh, I sat through with the, at the appointment to travel, look at my dad's eyes. And the, and the ophthalmologist came along and uh, all the tests were done and so forth. And he brought a model of the eye and started speaking about this is this and this is what needs to be done and so forth. And I was thinking about that with our eyes. Our eyes grow weak, don't they? Yeah, <laughs> that's why I've got glasses. If I take this off, I, I can't see some of you in the back actually. Right? So I need them. You see, the eyes of Jesus, they don't need any surgery. They never go dim. His eyes sees everything. That, that, that's what he's seeing here. You see, his eyes were like a flame of fire, laser sharp. He sees everything. These are laser sharp eyes and nothing escapes his penetrating eyes. And this one, this Jesus, stands in the midst of his church. You think he doesn't know what's going on in this church? You think he doesn't know? Nonsense. He knows everything that goes on here. You see, we can hide stuff, can't we? But he knows. He sees everything that happens here. He sees everything that happens in his church, not just here at St. Stephen's, but across his church, across the world. He sees everything that happens in the nation. But he's particularly here saying, I stand in the lampstands and I see the church. I know what's going on. Don't play games with me. Don't play hide and seek. Take a bow with me. You know that, that's what they call it, isn't it? I, I remember as a kid playing hide and seek. With, 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 and then when I, as a father I played hide and seek with, with our kids when they were growing. I can't do that anymore, obviously. But 
And, and it was fun, isn't it? We can hide and seek and go and pick a bow and do this and that. There's nothing that we can hide from God. <laughs> he sees everything. And I want us to remind ourselves of this, friends. You see, what is your view of the church of Jesus Christ? Have you got a low view of the church of Christ? Have you got a high view of his church? Because Christ has a high view of his church. There is no compromise. See, he loves his church. We know that. Sharp. His feet are like burnished, look at that, burnished feet. He's coming to judge with readiness and sometimes that will come in the forms of discipline for the church as well. But it's also a futuristic one as well. His voice is a strong voice, this, which is the ultimate voice of the judgment. This is the sound of many waters, crashing waters. Have you ever stood uh, by the ocean? I'm sure you have. Gone for a walk along the beach? Uh, whenever we are at Aries Inlet, I go up on the place there, on the, on the big rocks. And I stand there in the evening. It's quite nice. And you hear the waters. Woof, woof. Relentless, isn't it? Relentless. It amazes me each time I go to the beach. It amazes me. I, I love the water. I love the ocean. Who of us doesn't like it? Come on, we all do, right? But I hear the thundering voice. The, the waters, wave after wave. And, and John is, is hearing the sound. You see, in Ezekiel 43, the Old Testament prophet describes the glory of God and says this. He says this. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. You see the power. This is the power of the voice of God. Crushing waters. Powerful. Speaking. You see, this passage describes this to Jesus. You see, in his, in his right hand, he had seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Verse 16, who are these seven stars? You see, uh, uh, see they are the angels of the seven churches, and we get, we'll get to that in a moment. In a moment, I'll come back to that. You see, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. You see, this is taking us back to, to Isaiah chapter 11. You see, where with his mouth... Let me read it. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, Isaiah 11 verse 4, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Notice the language. Judgment language. Christ, the two-edged sword, is the word of God. You see, Christianity, we don't take up swords in this world and go fight it. The word of God does it. And ultimately we'll be judged by the word of Christ. Like a two-edged sword. Uh, his face was like the sun shining in full strength of brightness. You know, um, I was reading Jonathan Edwards, uh, some of his uh, writing uh, on the excellency of Christ. It's, it's a good read, edited by, um, uh, for 21st century Christians by Reverend Charles Biggs. And he says this, Christ is the creator and great possessor, owner of heaven and earth. He is sovereign Lord of all. His knowledge and wisdom is without bounds. His power is infinite and none can resist him. His riches are immense and inexhaustible. His majesty is infinitely terrible, awesome or awful. 
As one writer puts it this way, the entire picture taken as a whole is symbolically of Christ, the Holy One, coming to purge His churches and to punish those who are persecuting His elect. What a glorious and awesome picture, friends, we see here. His hair, His head, everything combined together, white as snow, reminds us that He's washed away our sins, as it were. Notice the response. How does John respond? Look at verse 17 onwards. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me. Fear not, for I am the Alpha, sorry, I am the first and the last. And the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things. Friends, John responded by falling as if he was dead in worship. You see, today we see him by faith, don't we? We too need to know what it means to fall at his feet in faith and worship him, the Lord of glory. When is the last time that you fell on your feet? You fell at the feet of Jesus. When is the last time you came to him and bowed your knees to this amazing Savior? When is the last time you came and said, Lord, I am a sinner. You are a great saviour. And I come and I worship you. I fall at your feet in faith. See, that's the response, isn't it? Of someone who sees the majesty of Christ. Our lives are shaped by our worship of him. Every one of us worships something. (laughs) We can worship our reputation. We can worship our jobs. We can worship uh, our belongings, our things, our families, our loved ones. But who do we worship primarily in our lives? See, John worships. The picture for a moment is this, this old man in his 90s. See, he falls as if he was dead. Now, what does Jesus do? <laughs> Look at your text, friends. This is quite a remarkable thing as well. When I fell, verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet. Then, verse 17, he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. You see, Jesus reaches out, puts his hand, puts his right hand on John and says, John, I'm here. I'm here. You know, it's a nice thing, isn't it, when somebody puts their hand, like it's like a father or a mother, you put your hand upon your child. You say, son, daughter, it's okay, it's okay. Have you done that to your children? Hmm? When they are perhaps sad, you put your arm around them and say, it's okay, son, it's okay, daughter. It'll be right by God's grace. That's what Jesus does to John. Puts his right hand. You know, the right hand signifies power of Christ. It signifies his mighty hand. And that's what Jesus does. When we bow the knee and we fall at his feet in worship, the Lord reaches out and he puts his hand upon your life and says, it's okay, my child. It's okay. I'm with you. What a beautiful picture, isn't it? For all of us here this morning. I don't know what you've gone through this past week. I don't know what your life is like this morning. I will say this. The Lord puts his hand upon our lives. I was uh, listening to a song. I don't know what's happening with me. I'm remembering all my old uh, choruses. Uh, 
and uh, maybe you don't know this one, but I, I learned this. Shackled by a heavy burden. Do you know that one? Maybe I'll, say, I'll give you a, a tune. Shackled by a heavy burden. Beneath a load of guilt. Then the hand of Jesus touched me. You know that one? And now I'm no longer the same. I'll stop there. That's how it goes. He touched me. Oh, he touched me. And oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something wonderful happened. And now I know he touched me and made me whole. Have you been touched by the hand of Jesus? Have you experienced his touch upon your life? In all your grief, in all your sadness, and in all the challenges of life. You know, this is some of the amazing, comforting thoughts. The touch of the hand of the Lord. The Master's hand upon our lives. The one who made you. The one who created me. Puts his hand in Christ and says, you are mine. Precious, isn't it? What better hand to have upon our lives than the Lord's hand. Fear not, John, Jesus says. Fear not. Two words. You know, in life we have many fears, don't we? We fear about the future. We fear about losing our jobs. We fear about being diagnosed with a serious illness. The fear of death. I don't know what are the fears. And they're justifiable fears, but in the midst of these fears. Fear not, John. Why? Because I am the first and the last. I was living. I was the living one. I died. <laughs> this is a remarkable texture. I'm the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. You see, John, go back to the cross, John. Know that I died for you at the cross. I paid the price for you. I atoned for your sins, John. At the cross, I died for you. But now, I've been raised, and I'm alive, John. And I will not die again. My death was only a temporary one. It was only for a short time. And that death was because of you. And now I'm alive. And I'm alive forever and evermore. Never to die again, John. Never to die again. Because I paid the price for my people. The church needs to know that we are serving the living Christ. I died, John. I died for you. Reminds the church, I died for you, my people. Behold, I'm alive. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Wow, what a glorious comfort this is. He has the keys of death. That is, he has the authority and power over death itself. And death can no longer conquer the believer. I said I did a funeral this past week. This lady was 101 years plus. Every funeral, whatever age it is, it's always hard, isn't it? When you commit a body to be buried or to be cremated. And I'm confronted with death again. And I thought about this. You know, to the believer, one day when the cold, chilling hand of death strikes us, every one of us, <laughs> will be with Christ because he has the keys of Hades. You see, Hades does not mean hell or the graveyard. It signifies a disembodied state. That it refers to the state of death when life ceases with the separation of body and soul. We have this reading uh, from uh, one of the commentators. Does not the Son of Man reveal that he has the keys of death whenever he welcomes the soul of a believer into heaven? And does he not prove that he has the keys of Hades when at his second coming he reunites the soul and body of the believer, a body now gloriously transformed? What a wonderful comfort for the persecuted believers. 
Jesus says, I have the keys of death and Hades. I will raise you on the great day. And then he gives us the interpretation of this mystery, does he not? In verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars, what you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. What does that mean, friends? Does it mean that every church has an angel? Does it mean that each church has a guardian angel? Are they heavenly beings sent out from God to each church? The term angel is also interchanged as messenger. And properly understood then, they are the ministers, pastors, set apart as God's servants to bring God's word to his church. This is the primary responsibility of the preaching elder in the church. He is to preach God's word. That's my primary responsibilities. Everything else, yes, there are responsibilities, but I can't fail in this area. To bring God's word to God's people. And he holds the stars. These, none of the pastors are stars, of course not. <laughs> he holds them as messengers in his hands. They go under his authority. And you know what? One day ministers and also elders will have to stand before this great judge and give an account to him. 1 Peter, when the great shepherd comes. This is what it is here. John, I hold the stars in my right hand, John. The powerful picture, isn't it? I stand behind the pastors who preach my word faithfully. I will be with them. And he will also discipline those who have deviated from God's word as well. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. They are light bearers. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. We are the light. Friends, Jesus reminds us that he is in the midst of the lampstands by his Holy Spirit. Even when the church seems weak, Jesus stands locally and globally with his church. He comes with power and strength. He is in control. And I pray that this church, this church, will always be reminded of this truth. It's a daunting reminder that Christ sees, he knows, he stands behind it. He's in the midst of the church. You see, as a pastor, with the responsibilities that's entrusted to me, you know, when I look at the church, I look at it in its totality, in its picture before Christ. And I can assure you, friends, my one prayer is that we will always do things that will honor the name of Christ in this place. Pray for us because it doesn't center around me. It doesn't center around you either. I say it respectfully. It ultimately centers around Christ. Do we see that? And it's about him. His name and his glory and his honor. May the Lord do with us as he pleases. May the Lord bless you. May his hand be upon us. And may we worship this great Savior in all his splendor and majesty. This week and always. Amen. Let's pray.